Asset Arrest, your global agent for accessing the property you can't afford. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Asset Arrest, a podcast about financialised housing, real estate and its impact upon communities, the meaning of community, ways of living and urban space. I'm Laura Yule and in each episode I typically invite a guest to attend a viewing of a residential property with me as we pose as potential buyers. Guests are invited to talk about their own work, to share their knowledge and experience on related issues and to respond to the property that we view together and its place within a wider urban and global context. Breaking up my tour of the Pearl River Delta region, this episode takes us back to London to look at the most expensive property I've set foot in yet. This viewing took place only last week as the heightened pandemic panic broke out and I was joined by the brilliant Feminist Economics Department, otherwise known as artist and activist Cassie Thornton. Cassie is here in London working on a project with Furtherfield Gallery called The Hologram, although given the current situation, her time here may be cut short and the planned public events have so far been cancelled. Regardless, I'm sure the project will materialise in public in different ways and at different locations in the future. Cassie uses social practices, including institutional critique, insurgent architecture and healing modalities like hypnosis and yoga to find soft spots in the hard surfaces of capitalist life. Feminist economics is described or defined as a form of economics that has no relation to money, but that organises home on the planet around the production of health and life. The Hologram is a feminist health militia that produces networks where we can practice skills like trust, communication and cooperation that will help us outlast capitalism. This project was in the works well before COVID-19 was on the horizons, but it now takes on an even more urgent appeal. To quote from the booklet Cassie gave me about the project, Regardless of gender, we want you to join a growing network of people who have the capacity to heal and who understand that healing involves destruction, and our healing requires the work of destroying capitalism and its associates, racism and patriarchy. It's no problem though, because even though you've been told that you are broken by these systems which profit off of your death, you aren't. Nothing is broken, so there is no expensive fix. You can stop saving up to be saved. The hologram is summarised here as a theory and a practice of mutual aid, a new way to cooperate to produce health, well-being and radical social transformation. The hologram emerged from the collaboration of a group of precarious US women and femmes in 2016 who gathered to develop and experiment with grassroots small group systems of interdependence and mutual care for an extended community of artists, organisers and healers, an intentional community in exile. Working in the context of the monstrous US medical system that doesn't provide meaningful health care, this group was inspired by the experiments of health activists in Greece who, in the face of the austerity unleashed on their country, set up community-run clinics. The hologram is inspired by one model from Greece, the integrative model, which attempted to challenge some of the entrenched hierarchies inherent to conventional medical care and allowed for a different approach to ideas of health, authority, care and expertise. Health is not an individual possession, but a community responsibility. Looking after someone's health is not only responding to physical illness, but also attending to the conditions of one's life, work, political climate, relationships, money, food, mental strain, housing, interests, and one's social life. In the integrative model and the hologram, three people, not all of them experts, focus on the holistic well-being of one person, and that one person in turn becomes healthy and capable of being a better part of the community. The goal of the hologram is to give people an experience of social trust and interdependence that they didn't know they could have. 
It's meant to teach through experience that each person's health improves by an increase in the well-being of people around them. The booklet then goes on to break down some ideas regarding where the economy ends and one begins. Capitalism's false lessons, such as if we continue to work hard and play by the rules, everything will work out. And then it poses some questions from the hologram to the reader or the potential participant and suggests some protocols and practices for helping us regain our collective powers. A folded insert links the project directly to the coronavirus pandemic, describing it as the first viable, scalable, social cure for it. The press release goes on to state that Cassie aims to create a positive health epidemic by offering structured experiences of peer-to-peer care, trust and cooperation that are necessary and possible in times of desperation when emergencies, economic and social conditions make health unachievable for most people. Epidemics, she says, show us that as human beings, we are all in this together, and what affects one person anywhere affects everyone everywhere. The hologram, Cassie goes on, works really well during times of confusion and instability, like if your city gets quarantined and regular untrained people have to begin to rely on other community members for support. I was really excited to meet Cassie and talk about her fascinating multi-layered practice, and given that she expressed specific interest in viewing somewhere that had extensive multi-level basement extensions, I started looking for properties in central West London that were more expensive than most things I'd seen so far. It was seemingly difficult to locate a house with such a basement, so I settled on inquiring about the most expensive house I could find at that time in the centre of the city, which was a house on Stratford Place near Bond Street Station. The price was £27 million, which was far, far more expensive than anything I'd used before, so I was pretty anxious, to say the least. It was actually the first time I've used a fake name, as when it gets to that price point, I'm pretty sure they Google you, so I wanted to be absolutely sure we could get into this space. Before we hear what the promotional material has to say, let's go to Cassie and I's previewing conversation in a nearby cafe and hear more about her work. I refer to myself sometimes as an artist, because that's convenient, because there's no other word for what... I'm doing, but then I also like to call myself a feminist economist. And when did you start calling yourself a feminist economist? Maybe in like 2011 or something. Um, before I really knew what feminist economy or economist were, was. or yeah, <laughs> or no, it, was, it was like that. I didn't really understand that there was like a magazine or any sort of like sociology practice that was called feminist economics, but. Mm. I really took to it and I always thought that it should be a practice and not just an idea and that it should be something that is about imagining an economy which centers the creation of health and life. Yeah. And is this now like almost a kind of set of principles through which your practice comes into being or something? Yeah. Or it has to like adhere to or something? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I'm not exactly, I'm in a new project, and the reason that I'm in London is that I am working on a project that is about kind of like creating an economy that requires no money that is sort of centering health and life through like a viral health project. But before that, I was more like an auditor or like a janitor or a person who kind of goes into institutions and uses kind of art spaces as an opportunity to reveal how things aren't working or to reveal like the sort of barriers to to having an uh, economy centered around health and life. So I'm really interested in this, uh, the project you did with the credit reports mm-hmm. and, and kind of like offering 
I guess you were having essentially just having a conversation with someone about why perhaps they've got in a situation where their credit report was like not as high as or not as good as it should be. Yeah. And the barriers that this was then putting up and the problems it was causing in their life. And your report kind of detailed their story, I guess. Mm. Something a lot more human and relatable and yeah. less abstract than this kind of number. To explain a bit further, here I'm referring to an ongoing project or activity called Give Me Creds that Cassie has been instigating with the Feminist Economics Department since 2013, where she produces alternative credit reports for people who have been disallowed access to a basic necessity because of their credit score. The participant has a 60-minute meeting with Cassie to explain ways that their bad credit was a result of factors beyond their control, following which a report is written by her and co-edited alongside the participant. The project is one way in which she has worked to strip financial debt of its legitimacy by questioning its basic foundations and institutions. Do you have the kind of big credit reporting industry and here, yeah. like, and does it get used Do to, you know, to, to decide whether people can get apartments? I've never heard about it being used to rent apartments, but I mean, in terms of buying, of course, then if you want to get a mortgage, that obviously. How does it get used? Like, besides buying a house, does it get used when you're uh, like for a job? phone contracts, like okay. setting up your, like, I don't know, if any kind of contract, like insurance or. And I also think it means that you're deemed untrustworthy enough that you never get invited to do jury duty. And that's my suspicion because I've never been invited to do jury duty, and I'm like, I feel like I'm in a pile of bad people. But it's not just because of like I have debt and no money, it's like because I've moved house, moved address like constantly, you know, you, you seem like a kind of unreliable, unhinged person probably. Well that's what I think, I don't know, this is not a fact. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so in the US, um, in 42 states, uh, you, employers can look at your credit report to decide employers. whether you deserve oh, or whether you're trustworthy enough to be hired. Like our credit rating... It's about showing whether you're reliable and trustworthy. And that's, so it would be normal for an employer to check that? It is probably more for low-wage jobs. For low-wage jobs? Yeah, really? so like if you're going to go get a job at the mall, at They like want to know kiosk. you're trustworthy? Yes. Okay, so this is really so like... So it's like a weapon used against poor people. It is like a kind of social credit system in a way. Well, which is now always talked about as this like separate thing that China's suddenly invented. Right, and is right, doing, But right. it's kind of like a credit, a financial credit rating is a social credit rating. Anyway, it is, it completely. is. So, I mean, I think, yeah, the US model is like very like inspiring to the Sesame credit model. Mm. But then, like, I mean, it's... No, did you have you talked to people in China about Sesame Credit? I spoke like the people I was interviewing. I kind of like I was asking them about it because I was curious. But the general, well, what I was, the information I was given by them was that people found it to be working very well and that it had hugely reduced crime. And for example, like there was a businessman, businessman who had some startup. Something happened. They went bust. He owed loads of people money. Didn't pay it. So he was completely restricted on like travel and all these things. So the public were like really happy that this guy had kind of got what what he deserved. Wow. Because the, like you know they owed me. He owed many of them money. So I don't know. It seems That's like wild. I'm sure. Because I know like I it, know. it totally. Sesame Credit connects like your like if you have bad credit, it relates to your visa and your ability to travel. And then it also 
your credit is affected by people you know, right? So like you're not supposed to associate if you're friends with someone with yeah, you're not supposed to associate or date or be friends with people with bad credit. Wow. So it's like credit is the virus. Oh, bad God. credit is the virus. And then, but I would never imagine it being used on the powerful. Like that's really interesting. That well, I mean, I don't know how powerful this person had been, but like yeah. presumably if, he, if, if the company owed this many people money for whatever reason, then I don't know. It, it, it makes me think like here we had recently uh, Thomas Cook, the travel agency that kind of went bust and everyone was stranded all over the world and never got money back and blah 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 blah. And yeah, it, it, I, I'm just trying to imagine like whoever runs Thomas Cook being like suddenly like cut off. Self, like enforced isolation at home <laughs> because they can't buy a bus ticket or taxi or whatever. Wow. And what if whether that would like make everyone happy? Have you followed anything about Bernie Madoff in the States? He was this sort of like massive swindler, had uh, like around and before the financial crisis, had uh, invested tons of people's money and like lost it and lied about it. And so, I don't remember the numbers anymore because it was so long ago, but he, yeah, he kind of like tricked so many people, so many wealthy people into losing their money. Then what and happened? so he ended up going to jail. Oh, you went for to like, for And life. this is like never, this has never happened before, right? Because like in the US, whoever is the biggest scam artist wins and yeah. becomes president. Not, they don't go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> so this was so interesting because he did go to jail. But then, um, it's an interesting case because he's really old. I think he's like in his 70s or 80s now. And so he has a life sentence, but he's really sick in jail. And so there's a book that's been written a couple of years ago, I think in 2017, that's about, I can't remember what it's called, but it's about whether or not he should have to sustain his life sentence even if he's really sick. Should he get sick leave? Should he get some sort of like care, even though he you know, ruined a bunch of people's lives? And He didn't kill anyone, though. He didn't kill like anyone. It's all about money, but like our sense of kind of like vengeance and justice around money and like how he ruined a bunch of rich people's lives. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. That's it's crazy. so it's just so interesting to think about like what what comes as what comes as winning and what comes as losing and how you get punished and but the credit rating system in the US is like it really is very, very predatory on poor people. It's so crazy because basically if you are poor, you don't really probably have any health insurance. So if you if you die I mean if you have a a broken leg and you have to go to the hospital, like that could set you back fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. And what happens then? It's like that becomes, it's paid for and it's your debt. Or yeah, it's, it's like paid, sometimes you have to take a loan, or do you have to? That can happen. You can do sometimes that. you can take a loan. Otherwise, sometimes they um, like there's there's cases where people actually get their credit checked at the hospital before they do a surgery. Which is insane. Or they get you just get the surgery and then you have a bill and you have to pay it back to the hospital um, and they but they charge like a hospital would probably at a certain point pass it over to a different kind of creditor who would pursue you to get them money but then they would add like service charges and fees and stuff so it ends up that they, the cost keeps going up so a lot of people when they have a bad credit score it's because of a health emergency 
And then, like, if you can't work because you broke your leg and you can't work for a few weeks, and then you, like, lose your apartment, like, it's really hard to get another apartment because all landlords, they've always been able to look at your credit report. And they, I mean, they, there's genuinely, there's just a lack of understanding amongst, like, landlords. Like, obviously, they want to be paid their money, but, you know, surely it could be anyone that ends up with a health problem and then in trouble and kind of, like, cut out of society. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, totally. Yeah. It's just so easy. It's, like, it's easier to fall in one of those cracks mm. than not. So, like, I mean, basically, most people are kind of like housing insecure it really has so much to do with like a history of like like having some sort of emergency happen in their lives that they couldn't yeah, yeah, yeah. they could not really come back there's from. no like contingency so but my it's like coronavirus i mean like is that that going to be a, an individual's cost you it's going to be i mean it's going to be a shit show i don't know what's going to happen because also i mean the, the homeless population is getting so big like i mean nobody there's no not going to be self-isolation no 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 i was thinking about that the other day as well like what the homeless would just be left to die right their immune systems are well, bad and if they, they don't have medical care and they have compromised immune systems and yeah. yeah it's just like it's very scary but i think that the the interesting thing about the project of doing credit reports, and it applies to like I think anybody, is that just that like when you actually look at somebody's larger narrative, like it's pretty amazing what people survive. And the goal of that project was like to actually get to through interviewing somebody and finding out like all the challenges they face and all the ways that they've solved problems or created community to like help to help survive. That like revealing that to them even is really powerful because a lot of people just feel like failures. But they're not. They don't see that it's actually, actually the system failed them. This is a lot of shit so you have to go through and it's like you made it through and you're Yeah, and so like just by actually having somebody listen to you and say like, well like congratulations for surviving a really mm. predatory system and also like these are all the conditions you faced and survived. Yeah. People would feel really different. Um, so part of it is like a kind of weird financial witchcraft which is just about flipping the story for people and being like actually and then that does help them because it helps a lot. The way they hold that story or like uh, communicate about certain things I guess changes. Totally. Yeah, and I think yeah. like a lot of people would just go to the next appointment for an apartment and get it. And, um, and I just think it was like, like financial therapy or something. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah, no, but it's yeah. like but radical financial literacy. I think you're just like, oh, actually, this is how the world works. And this is like, like me in that world, um, and it's not my fault. Like I'm not an isolated failure. And then we would make a, we'd make this document for them too that looks sort of official, and I would put references on it from people that like have important jobs. And um, they could staple that to their regular traditional credit report in their resume or whatever. Actually, Elizabeth Warren, who's running for president, probably one of a few, a few good things that she's done was create the Center for Financial Protection, CFPB, Center for Financial Protect Protection Bureau or something. And it was basically like they did a bunch of stuff to make sure that people could actually see their credit reports because before that you'd have yeah. to pay like $30. Yeah, I think like, I have like a free subscription to something that shows me it but 
there's certain things I can't access and would have to pay, I think, for like a detailed breakdown. Yeah. So of course I'm not going to pay a monthly subscription just to like right. watch my credit card It's kind of like an online game. Yeah. <laughs> Good thing they don't check my credit rating for viewing £27 million apartments actually. It's kind of surprising that they don't do something like that. They don't do anything. They didn't, they didn't, I mean like usually I call and they at least are like, what's your budget? And, you know like, yeah. but obviously when you say it's... When you ask to see the most expensive thing on the market, then um, I guess the project you've done that kind of more directly links to this idea of real estate is Desperate Holdings. Yeah, Desperate Holdings Real Estate and Landmine Spa. Desperate Holdings Real Estate and Landmine Spa was a one-month pop-up by the Feminist Economics Department held at Dream Farm Commons, an artist-run gallery located in a storefront in downtown Oakland, California. And this, you were living in San Francisco when you did this? I was living in San Francisco before I did it. Before um, you did it, okay. I was living there until 2016-2017. Okay. So and then I just, I just did this project last year. Um, but it was using some materials that I got when I lived there, which... Oh, so you kept the clay yeah, for a while. <laughs> with like, like, it was like my most precious possession. And is there now a building on that site? Like, is well, it happened? Is it being kind of... Well, this, the story is that like in 2014 they started to um, dig a giant hole in the financial district of San Francisco to build the Salesforce Tower, which would be like the tallest tower on the west side of the U.S., like west of the Mississippi. And it was like, you know, like right in the middle of the financial district. So there's just this whole area now called like Salesforce Village or something like that. And so they're, and they're the biggest tech employers in San Francisco. Bay Area, and so they were digging. They were digging a hole, and I—I I mean, I've never seen a hole that big in the middle of the city. Like it was—it was like two or three hundred feet deep, so really, really deep. And um, I was with a friend, and I just asked if we could. To, we asked the construction workers if we could see what the dirt looks like if you when you get that low, just because I've never <laughs> seen it. Like, what do you like? What I thought there? there'd be like fossils, or I'm sure yeah, there's yeah. something, but I didn't know what. And um, the construction worker was this kind of rad woman, Patricia, and she's like, uh, oh my god, are you artists? <laughs> and she, she's like, you're not going to believe it, but the clay that we're digging, or the, where we're digging right now, has this like clay we've never seen before, and it's this like, really beautiful, rich, dark, smooth, clean clay. Um, we'll freak out. So she brought us some, and we touched it, and it's like, it smelled really good, but it would have been underneath the transit center of San Francisco for 80 years. So you'd think it would be really toxic from like petroleum and stuff leaking down. <laughs> but it was beautiful. And um, and then she said to just come back late at night with a truck and she'd fill it up. And so we did. And so they gave us this like big box. It was probably, I don't know how many gallons, 10 gallons of clay. And uh, I was like, it became really like an obsession of mine to figure out like this stuff, which is like, part of the land of like some of the most valuable real estate in the world brought to the toxic dump like how like how do we value land in relation to, to real estate it's yeah, a very yeah, weird yeah. question and I just couldn't yeah I, I felt like I was just like hitting all kinds of walls trying to figure out what to do with it um, but it felt so special and then yeah so I ended up like trying really trying to contact one particular indigenous group to ask them what they would do with the land and they said that clay is not it's not like some dead material, it's our ancestors. And I didn't really know what they meant. And then I found out over time that that was like a burial site where they had found one of the oldest skeletons. Oh, wow. Like buried in a sort of ceremonial way. 
and that, I mean, also like mammoth teeth and tons of stuff buried there. The rest of the clay that I didn't have got brought to a toxic dump in Palo Alto and probably burned because to, to like kill it. Oh, was it that toxic? I mean, it was like... It's not toxic, it's just that it's, it's just like, they don't, they don't know what there's nothing, there's nothing more scary than like a living material that you don't understand. So I think to, to, to clean it, to sanitize it, I think they burn it. That's just okay, what one yeah, person yeah. said. Yeah, kill all the microbes. Kill all the viruses. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean the Desperate Holdings real estate was like a project about trying to like I opened a storefront office in Oakland, like in downtown Oakland, with this clay from San Francisco. And the real estate office was just about getting people to touch the clay and to think about land in relation to real estate, in relation to money, and to kind of like develop a different relationship to those things. Yeah, and I made a bunch of jewelry out of it so people could like wear the land. And then we, the reason it was like Desperate Holdings Real Estate and Landmine Spa is that like Part of the storefront was a real estate agency and then next to it was this like awkwardly placed spa. But the spa was really dirty and like chaotic and the real estate agent was agency was really like really clean and like professional. <laughs> but the idea was that I had gotten all of these local like artists and organizers and kind of healers to be act as real estate agents and people could make appointments with them in the real estate office and they would get people in different ways to interact with the play to kind of transform the relationship to the property. But specifically I think it's about in in a place that's so expensive like it is in London, like touching the clay I think was a, in part a way of helping people like let go of some sort of cruel optimism that says that one day they will own property and that that will be like their sort of saving stability and grace and way of kind of like escaping the chaos. So that was really like the, the kind of goal of the project is to like get people to kind of interact with the clay and think about like what how else we might use land in the future and like land in a, is made of body. I mean I think that's the thing that no one can actually like when you're in a city it's so hard it's almost impossible to realize like you are on land land is made of decomposing bodies you are land what we're doing today is obviously completely different to that but again I just had this like desire to go into these spaces that you know are there that you know are causing all these problems but that you feel like obviously completely excluded from yeah yeah what do you think it does to kind of go inside of these hidden spaces I mean I don't know I'm kind of like almost nothing because <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's like it's, it's it's kind of depressing because you, you I think today will be different because this is like an old apartment and I've never been in anything this expensive. But in terms of like the typical type of place I've been seeing, which is this like new build, supposedly luxury, basically just way overpriced yeah. um, apartments that are not that big, not that spectacular, but kind of okay. And they're I mean they just look exactly like the kind of CGI renderings of themselves yeah. so I don't know you don't actually have much of a different experience from just looking at a picture of it I think the thing that you do see is the how much how much the the kind of like feeling of disconnection from the city is a selling point like not only the view but you might be up high I don't know I viewed one yesterday in Canary Wharf where they actually used the phrase like oh it's a gated community without gates here like in this area of the city and these things were like selling points so yeah. I, I think it, it, for me, it becomes more about understanding a relationship between like this small, exclusive, private space and like the wider city or something, mm -hmm. and how different people are maybe even pitched against each other to like perpetuate these tensions and exclusions. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, today we're going to see a twenty-seven million pound apartment, I think, which is, I mean, this is like 
way, way more expensive than anything I've seen. Well, it, it has, so I'm kind I think of, it has, the, the property has like four different areas in it that are like, they're like, office. yeah, like, so you could have like a living space and an office in each area or something. Yeah, yeah. So you could have your whole own compound. I don't, he said something to me like, if you want to convert the office space into living space, you need to apply for planning permission or something. So I don't know. I, I'm hoping they have some basement extension stuff going on, but I'm not sure. Because I know that you said you're interested in that. Kind of mm -hmm. makes sense with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really Just interested about in lands or two lands. Yeah, totally. And like the way that, like, I mean, I I've been following the Guardian for a few years. Their coverage of all these subterranean apartment living spaces all over London, where like wealthy people can live in, but they could also hide. Yeah, well, as they must be doing now. Also, I learned that there's this oh, there's this like weird development in East London called London City Island, but it's on like a kind of, it's a peninsula, it used to just be a kind of wasteland, but um, I got told that a lot of the land that they dig out in this area of London to make the basement extensions went to this place to like rebuild the ground okay. on which to build these other like lesser but still supposedly luxury apartments. So there's just that weird like wow the land is yeah. that's what I wanted to know because I think that the um, that thing I think was like one you had a guest on one of your first shows that was talking about like these properties that were underground how um, you can't you can't you don't have air rights when you buy property here but you have like ground rights or whatever yeah. so you can build as low down off the way to the center of the earth yeah. as long as you avoid like the like pipe important pipes and different kinds of public infrastructure <laughs> yeah train stations apparently it slowed down though the basement extension oh. business i'm not sure why that is hmm. if it's like just a brexit or like oh we should go really oh, okay, okay. so what does 13 stratford place have to say about itself Stratford Place, Marleybone, W1. A grand and opulent house with gallery and family office. Located on a private and peaceful cul-de-sac in the very centre of London, within easy reach of Bond Street is this unique period house. Renovated and interior designed by the current owners, this opulent residence offers stunning and grand proportions throughout. Currently consisting of an impressive and substantial four-bedroom suite residence, two large terraces, four reception rooms, gym, sauna, with office space and a gallery on the ground and lower ground floor via separate entrance. This would be ideal for a buyer looking for an outstanding residence and family office. And given that I was so incredibly wealthy, they obviously were keen to show me more options. I agreed to, that we also visit a new high-end development by Regent's Park, which is on and called Regent's Crescent and developed by developer CIT. Having never heard of CIT, I checked their website. They describe themselves as a value-added and opportunistic real estate investor who see asset management as a creative industry. Interesting. As this was a new development, they had a substantial hardback brochure with plenty to say. Regents Crescent, a masterpiece in modern living. Introducing 67 Grade 1 listed apartments residences and nine garden villas set behind a sweeping facade. A jewel in the crown. Built in 1820 for the Prince Regent, later King George IV, by the defining architect of the Regency period, John Nash. A royal path carved from Buckingham Palace to Regent's Crescent. Just as Nash's hands crafted London in 1820, 
Masters of their craft have spent thousands of hours recreating Regent's Crescent for 2020. Residences once built for the closest courtiers of the family of the king are now a flawless reimagining of the finest living London can offer. 1820 and the Regency period was a time of spectacular opulence and decadence. This is a journey behind the facade, a procession from palace to palace down the spine of London. We want people to feel the sense of arrival, to enjoy the seamless flow through their rooms, the joy of being at home in an exquisite space. The moment your car is parked for you, the morning coffee taken on your private terrace, the views over the park. These are all facets of the experience of hotel living at home. London goes beyond any boundary or convention. It contains every wish or word ever spoken, every action or gesture ever made, every harsh or noble statement ever expressed. It is illimitable. It is infinite London. And now back to Cassie and I's post-viewing conversation. Um, so we've just finished seeing this house at Stratford Place and Park Crescent. A, well, we didn't see the apartment, but we saw the marketing suite and got a presentation about how wonderful it's going to be. Um, what, what's your? How, how did you? How did you find this experience and the properties? I mean, it was yeah, it's sort of like entering a vacuum, like into a part of the city or a layer of the city that's always existed, but that you can walk around and never see. Do you ever read China Meville? Have you read The City and the City? I often use that to talk about my city and mm. the difference between like uh, indigenous people and settlers and how they don't see each other. But this felt like like also an example of it where like I made a breach by entering the other world. And so um, in the city and the city, like basically there's like two cities that are right on top of each other, but the, the members of either city can't acknowledge each other, or they, that's called a breach. And like the like when we turned down, was it called? Stratford Place. Stratford Place, yeah. Yeah, so when we turned down and like the all of a sudden the sounds of the city got more muted and mm. the wind calmed down and there was no pedestrians anymore, I felt like I crossed into the other city and that immediately like uh, I felt a kind of like, you know, I got kind of like small and quiet and tired because it's like crossing into the other's world like you don't know the rules and it's immediately kind of like exhausting to try to perform or yeah, yeah. understand how you're supposed to perform and you well I mean I become really aware of like like I don't know what my face or my body's doing and if it's doing the right thing <laughs> or like what would the right thing even be mm -hmm. like how how does a body that feels comfortable and entitled and at home in this space like act and look and I'm sure there's not one one way of anyone yeah. being in a space like that yeah, but yeah. no matter how entitled you feel you're still like just have your own like body language and dynamics but yeah it's weird how aware you become of like every little part of yourself and then well, mm -hmm. but also for I don't know I, I found that time also goes really weird like I had no idea how much time we were even in that place yeah or how much time I was meant to look at things mm -hmm. it's like when you walk around a gallery and you're trying to be like polite right but you know you're like swipe sc scrolling past all the paintings uh -huh. kind of like yeah it's funny like the walls are thicker
or something, like you don't actually get to stay in touch with like the rest of reality. I definitely felt like I didn't, I couldn't mm. keep track of time, and I also, oh yeah, but also going down that street. I mean, it's I guess because apart from for this reason, it's not the type of street I would ever have a reason to seek out or yeah. end up on. Mm-hmm. I, I actually really, I had no idea that people would live in such close proximity to like embassies and, and yeah. like Forever Twenty One, yeah, yeah, or like yeah. you know just these like crap high street stores right mixed in with embassies and then some of the most expensive residential property in the city something seems kind of weird about mm-hmm. that like landscape i was just trying to police what i police my actions so much because i think like there was so much that was really unfamiliar to me part of it maybe is class but part of it's also like in the u.s i don't think in u.s and canada like there isn't a kind of old money that has like such old and well-preserved stuff even like just certain aspects of the places that we saw like had certain stylistic things that i'd never seen before like wallpaper that was made of like fabric but the fabric was still kind of like it was sort of attached to the wall but sort of ripply like mm. coming off the wall and I kept touching it and then I was like I'm not supposed to I'm not yeah, supposed yeah, to be yeah. touching it or amazed with textures but a lot of it is like the materials are so fine or they're applied in ways that I've never seen before and so I just had to keep myself from just asking very weird and specific questions about it or mm. that, that felt like that would be like not yeah one room had like the walls had kind of metal cladding yeah I, I was touching that like oh that's actual like thin metal that has mm-hmm. some kind of amazing texture on it but yeah I, you realize like we live our lives without much texture at home mm-hmm. or something yeah yeah or, like the texture of having no money is like plain kind of like yeah polyester finish or something totally drywall <laughs> and like there's yeah. no options yeah yeah and it also i think like the our behavior was so interesting because like like you had said right when we first got in or right before we got in that um that we should act like none of this really impressed us that was so it was like the best cue or like score i could have imagined because as soon as i i whenever i would kind of get confused about how to act i think i would just go back to not being impressed and so i was trying to make my face really calm I so kept I, getting annoyed at myself because I kept saying things like, oh, it's very nice. I'm like, oh, like, who would say that? Maybe they would, I don't know. But. I don't know, you you said it about really particular and kind of peculiar things, I think. So I thought it was well placed. It didn't seem like you were overwhelmed. It just seemed like you were, like, making sort of sound measurements in your mind or something. And it, it was also strange, that's the first time I've ever used a different name because usually I like the idea of the artist kind of infiltrating in a way that they might be found out. But I thought in this case, like, they just wouldn't let me come and enter the space yeah. if, if they could Google me. And, which they would because I think when you talk about that much money, you want to know who the person is, right? Yeah, yeah I don't know. The second place, I guess, is the type of thing I'm more familiar with, but I've never been in an experience where they're not handing you a price list and telling you prices and focusing everything on a number. Uh-huh. Like it's usually like you're talking about a price in relation to square footage and service charge in relation to that. But I guess this is just another level again of mm-hmm. you were talking multiple millions of... Well, also I think maybe there's a sort of deal going on where Andrew of Herod is 
your entourage and he may be in charge of handling I your mean, relationship to these other places. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. he might be the person that like actually delivers you the news about the Okay. That's what I understood. Yeah. That maybe. might be like he, that might be they his kind job. Of work together yeah. and each get a cut of some commission or something. Yeah. yeah. I'm all, I mean I'm always impressed by their presentations and like so robust. Like the whole like the there was a scale model of the this. drawer that came out with the yeah. underground facilities. Actually, the aesthetic of those, the buildings that we were looking at the models of, like the new development near Regent's Park, was so, the aesthetic was not nice. Mm. So, like, metallic and austere. Ugh. Also, like, just from the little bit we saw of what I guess would be, will be one of the apartments, like, the bedrooms are tiny, you know, mm. everything was a lot more kind of, well, a lot less spacious and kind of... I don't know, I guess they're really going with the, the history of that building and also the, mm. I guess the access to the, a private part of Regent's Park is quite an impressive thing. Did we ask if that building originally was residential? I, wonder I was, was really confused by the whole like, oh it was bombed and I was, I, I, I didn't ask like, I didn't understand what was it doing for like, yeah, all for like all, all the time before the developer bought it, I don't know. So it was built in the 1830s, bombed in the, bombed during the World War II yeah, and then, and then hanging out. I can't imagine it was empty, but... It seems, it looks a little bit like governmental. Mm. I wonder what was happening in this. I don't know. But yeah, so they're apparently selling like extra one-bedroom apartments for the purpose of someone getting an extra car parking space. Yeah. Which is... Expensive way to get a parking A really space. like bizarre trade-off and use of space. But he said that a lot of people were using that for their staff, so that you would get mm. your, your larger house, and then you would buy another apartment for your staff, and then you'd have an extra car park. Because mm. probably your staff could not afford a car, or they don't deserve one. Sounds like being their staff is a good job to get. Mm. <laughs> if you get a yeah. one-bedroom apartment. Yeah, I there. should have said, like, oh, well, if anyone's looking for staff, <laughs> yeah. I would love and one of these one-bedroom apartments. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I, yeah, I think we should go back with my family, my husband's family, uh -huh. and... Um, I see how the deal could develop. Mm -hmm. He said the price was negotiable <laughs> of the first one. I wonder um, how low they'll go. <laughs> you know, at one point I did this project where I would hire an actor to have really articulate breakdowns or like tantrums. I wonder what it would be like to work with some actors that like would negotiate and like really mm. and work with them to develop a, a way to do it like really emotionally or like to manipulate and see what yeah. happens. What what context did you have people do have these breakdowns in? That like, was in the art? like in universities that were sort of public universities that were becoming really private and really expensive. So they would cry or just you know I, I was happy to do it actually in any university in the U.S. because they're all so expensive. But usually in art departments, um, sometimes in economics departments and stuff. But basically about the kind of the reality of going to school for a ton of money with no promise of a job or any sort of stable life and the and you know around different issues like like one time the character's name is Fedora Archive and she would cry sometimes like about her own sort of self-worth or about the amount of debt she had or about how yeah she had no future or about how everyone was in denial of basically like the state of the world and of their own relation to it or and how did people respond or react to this like well it's amazing because like if you if you're I mean I, I, I worked with one person named um, Laura Gold as the actor and she's like a small white woman but I think there's something to like specifically a white woman having a kind of meltdown where everybody gives a respectful distance and can't be they can't be skeptical they can't be um, 
critical they have to suspend everything and, and like worry about the well-being of this person mm. so people pay a lot of attention and listen really closely wow. so there's a way that like she would really have a stage people would step back but stay attentive and watch and then whatever she said was really powerful so one time uh, she trained me how to have a tantrum so I did it at the campus of University of California in San Diego <laughs> and I did it in the ca in the cafeteria where there's a bank inside of the cafeteria they were trying to give students credit cards and so I had a whole oh. breakdown like underneath the table where they were giving away the credit cards. I got underneath the table and held onto it and pulled on the, had a real tantrum. And the paramedics came and the police came and the manage, the building manager came and like social workers came and there was, and the fire department came and there was a whole Jeez. circle of people around me. And so um, I got to just like tell them exactly what I thought while like screaming. I like screamed, shook them off of me and then walked away. Wow. They got a lot of people involved. They, they did, it was a great audience. But I wonder in this situation, like what kind of performance could create because in the end you don't you can figure out what success would mean in in bringing people uh, more people along but like you could start and it could be really like chill and then something could actually happen yeah. Like, like what about the teenage daughter that is just oh, like, yeah. like this is bullshit. Or, or if you had a baby that just like, like was like that you believed what the baby said, but the baby was like totally unconsolable, and you were like, well, sorry, the baby doesn't like this place, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really grotesque, like three-year-old kid that's like taking, like controlling the whole situation. Yeah, 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 and like maybe ruining the art in there. Yeah. Did you recognize any of the art in that first place? Yeah, I did. I was trying to figure out, I don't know, there was a few pieces that was like... Yeah, that's, that's some of the larger text pieces, like one that said bang, bang, bang. No, it didn't say bang. Um, there was one on one of the stairs that was white with black text. Yeah, that that's familiar so familiar. Like, Ed, not Ed Rocher, but somebody maybe from that era. And then, like, they had such a big collection of, like, black South African art. But I got the feeling that they were not a black family, though they were from South Africa. I think we can find out quite easily, probably. Mm -hmm. Weirdly tiring. Yeah. I feel tired. Yeah. Do you usually? Yeah. But I, I hadn't done this in London for ages since yesterday. Uh, until yesterday, and I, I forgot how interesting I find it here because everything is just so over the top and yeah. like extreme, extremes of wealth. And, I, yeah. For me, the big question is like how to relate to or interact with the agents that are showing us the stuff because it's like I think probably likely that those people, some of them are working class and some of them might be making a little bit more money. But like how to how to like frame a character so that it's like still kind of not alienating to them at some point what's mm. happening, but like also like like in some if. If they had the awareness or the desire, they could also feel like they were in on something if they wanted to be. Yeah, I don't know what it's like to be an agent here. I, those guys, I feel like they were quite open and would have been up for some kind of incident. Yeah. Like interesting incident yeah, unfolding. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about the yoga class you've done or do as a... Yeah, so I teach feminist economics yoga and it's like, uh, it's meant to be a practice that I bring to yoga studios that are mostly like kind of more like wealthy corporate studios that specifically like white women go to, but I'll take anybody. And the idea is to kind of teach yoga, but while offering a kind of, ed a quick education in some radical politics around like what's possible and 
I ask people when they're in the yoga class to do things like take a deep breath and imagine the most annoying person that they know and then take a deep breath and think about what it would be like to live in a society that had quality, housing, healthcare, and education for all people, and then exhale, and then inhale and imagine the most annoying and difficult person you know living in a, a good society like that. So I, in some ways, some of it's a bit utopian, and then some of it is a bit more antagonistic, kind of trying to help people sort of understand their own complacent participation in capitalism, but also in racism and displacement, and also in the kind of stealing and weaponizing of yoga. I haven't done it for a while, but I, I was doing it in a lot of different art spaces as a way to practice so I could learn how to teach yoga. As an actual pure yoga. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, did, I mean, I took, I did go to yoga school, but I, I didn't really know how to teach. Mm. Um, and so I got experience teaching yoga in a bunch of art galleries, and I would teach, and I would have a really clear script that was trying to relate to the people that I knew were going to be coming. So, like, a lot of times if I was working at a bigger art institution, I would ask the board of directors to come, or, like, patrons. So that I would have like a group of kind of wealthier people and everybody wants to go to a yoga class. In a, in a weird way, it's like the thing that's the easiest to sell in an art space. So that's how I learned how to teach yoga is through talking to those people and kind of confronting really basic stuff like wealth inequality, like bringing up questions around like whiteness and feminism and also whiteness and yoga and like the sort of corporate overtake of yoga and I brought in whatever seems like sort of current and useful um, but the, the classes in a way were a bit antagonistic and then do you feel like you're performing a character or a role when you're doing something like this mm -hmm. As, yeah. yeah I mean I'm, all, I'm not very good at changing who I am but I am I can kind of become a bit authoritarian and mm -hmm. dominating because I just wanted to not be in the role of a yoga instructor who's like who like talks in a breathy voice and tells mm -hmm. everybody that they should just feel good or they should congratulate themselves for making it to the mat because my whole thing is actually like you're like Bikram you're yeah. like hey, you need a <laughs> like, yeah. but like with yeah, yeah. better advice than that yeah 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 but like <laughs> no like healing is gonna be hard if you <laughs> yeah. like don't fuck it up you paid all this money let's not fuck it up because I really think in a lot of ways like a lot of people who are are wealthy feel really isolated and without a kind of guidance to like a better type of ethic and so in a weird way like and then they become Scientologists or something terrible totally instead. totally are they volunteers <laughs> volunteer in like the stupidest ways or they like they just like it's like how do you find like radical leadership and like community when you're in these spaces that are like based on a kind of avoidance and complacency so like I think that that's my job is to actually like create an opportunity for for like people who are actually like not radicalized and are quite feel quite alienated and kind of forgotten by radical politics to have access to a set of like ideas and ways of thinking that they don't have access to so after speaking to Cassie, attending these viewings with her and convincingly, I think, playing the role of someone with an incredible amount of wealth, or at least a connection to it, I said it was actually my fictional husband's fictional family based in New York that we're looking to buy. I've been thinking a lot about the complex nature of the performances my guests and I enact within the framework of the viewing. As people who have no real prospect of owning these properties, we end up playing characters that we construct in our mind based on stereotypes, assumptions, media portrayals of the wealthy and nerves. At the same time, the estate agent is conducting a much more polished and precise performance in revealing the property to us and framing it within our minds. 
What would it mean to push this further, to return to the same property with my fictional family? How far could my involvement in these exclusive spaces go? Could I go so far as to put in an offer for a property? These are things I'll be considering in regards to the future of Asset Arrest, and I welcome suggestions, ideas and possible collaborations. But that's all for this week. Next week I'll be travelling to Hong Kong, not literally, travelling next week. Um, the conversation was recorded in December, as I'm now obviously self-isolating and barking. In Hong Kong, I'll be speaking to Wing Sheng Tang, a professor in the Department of Geography at Hong Kong Baptist University. Tang speaks to me about, amongst other things, the misuse of the terms gentrification and neoliberalism in regards to politics and urban development in Hong Kong. Till then, stay safe, stay indoors if you can, and stay healthy. Bye. Asset arrest, making contact, gaining access, asking questions, wasting time.